Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, I'll talk with Clay Masters on his final day at IPR. After 12 years in the newsroom and 10 years on the air as Morning Edition host, he is moving on. He and I will take a look back. But first, the Iowa State Fair is still a long way off. But this is the perfect time of year to get cozy in your kitchen and start perfecting recipes you might want to enter in some of the many food contests at the fair. Kay Fenton-Smith and Carol McGarvey both have long histories with the Iowa State Fair, and they collaborated to create the first comprehensive history of the State Fair food competitions. It's a history book and a recipe book, but best of all, it shares stories of some of the many people who have cooked their way to greatness or helped to make the culinary department what it is. It's called Baking Blue Ribbons, Stories and Recipes from the Iowa State Fair Food Competitions. You can find the book in the uh, the State Fair store on the Iowa State Fair Blue Ribbon Foundation website or at some local booksellers. And of course... You'll be able to buy it at the fair in August. Kay and Carol are with me now. Kay, welcome. Hello. Thank you, Charity. It's great to be here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Carol, welcome. Thank you for having us. It's wonderful to have you both here. And Kay, why don't you tell us first a little bit about your long history with the fair? Sure. Thank you. Well, I have been a state fair baking competitor since the early 2000s, and uh just like so many people, a huge fan of the State Fair and just really fell in love with the food department. And just on a whim, uh, started. I've always loved baking since I was a little kid and thought, you know, this would be a fun thing to do. And just really got hooked. Um, entered a first, first few things and just found that it was so much fun. And I learned so much by doing it from other bakers and cooks, from the judges, and just really discovered this whole world within a world at the State Fair and uh, have been doing this ever since at the Elwell Family Food Center. Right. And in addition to being a food exhibitor, you've done guest judging. You've done. Yes. You've led workshops at the fair. So yes. You're, you're involved at a lot of levels. Uh, I just love it. And that is one thing that's so great about the food department is you can get involved in so many ways, whether you actually want to compete or whether you want to volunteer to make it all happen. And I love, I've started um, doing some demonstrations, and this year kind of maybe got in a little over my head, but I had such a blast doing um, yeast bread demonstrations and really um, doing this for beginners and just um, trying to get people to feel comfortable working with yeast and having some fun with it and just had a great time. And uh, Carol, your history with the fair goes back even farther. Tell us about your relationship with the fair. In uh, 1984, um, I was a um, features writer at the Des Moines Register and I was asked to become a judge at the state fair. And uh, even after I retired from the register, I kept on doing it. And um, I also write for uh, on a freelance basis for Welcome Home Des Moines magazine, and uh, that publication sponsors a soup contest, which is um, a lot smaller than many of the other contests that I have judged over the years. So um, it's really fun to see what people bring, uh, how they interpret um, recipes, and it's just a fun thing to uh, be involved right. in. Right. When you say much smaller, that's notable because, of course, you have to taste 
everything. Everything. <laughs> everything for sure. The first year I started out as a judge, there were 98 cakes that we were judging, and the other food editor, or food uh, judge, was a food editor at uh, Better Homes and Gardens magazine. She also was very pregnant, and um, three times during our judging stint, she had to go behind the black curtain and be sick because she had a sugar high. And I finally leaned over to her and I said, and I can't remember her name even, but I said, you need to leave. You're not being fair to yourself, to your baby, and certainly not to the person whose food you're judging. So she did leave and she said, I don't know how you're going to finish this. I said, well, it will be ours. (laughs) Um, And it was, but uh, I can't do those big contests anymore. Oh my uh, gosh, I can't even. It sounds, sounds like a dream come true for like a seven-year-old. Exactly. But, but not for an adult I, I always, human being. Exactly. I always say the first five things of any contest are wonderful. <laughs> After that, it's sort of, you know, you have to watch what you're doing. You can't make a face. You can't spit it out. Only the wine judges can spit out what they're tasting. So um, <laughs> anyway, um, I just do small contests now. <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. There's a, a, a quote in your book from Evelyn Birkby, who um, was just a wonderful, wonderful Iowan, a columnist, and she was also on the Kitchen Clatter program for Mm -hmm. many years from KMA Radio, and she talked about when she was judging for the fair, and she was advised to take small bites. Small bites. Right. She only had to see one person rush out of the tent to go throw (laughs) up somewhere before she was like, yep, that's enough for me. I will take small bites of whatever I'm eating. And then remember that you might have to take a sip of water or have a cracker or something in between to get a certain taste out of your mouth. So it's sometimes double things that wow. you're testing, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, we yeah. will. I, I want to get into some of the, the intricacies of judging a little later on. But this project came together for the two of you during the pandemic. Kay, how did that get started while everybody was was isolated from each other? How did yes. you and Carol decide to do this? Well, while we were all missing the fair, um, I realized, that as, as we all know, there have been so many amazing books and even a movie and many, many things done to honor and celebrate the incredible, iconic Iowa State Fair. But um, when we realized that a book specifically about our iconic and number one in the nation food department had never been written, uh, this seemed like something that really had to be done. And so... Carol and I see each other every year at the fair, and I and Carol and I had known each other through writing. And I said to Carol, "Boy, what would you think about writing a book about this? You know, taking this on." And we decided that let's let's go for it. And uh, yeah, we got started, and we started re- you know taking a deep dive into research in the Iowa State Fair mm-hmm. archives. And so many people were just so helpful and sharing their stories and. Their recipes, and also looking way back to, you know, 1854 was when it all got started. And learning about this much earlier history, I mean, Carol and I together feel like mm-hmm. we come from both sides of the judging table, and we felt like we brought a lot of knowledge already. But once we started digging in and really appreciating what was happening way back when it first got started, especially in the 1800s and early 1900s, it was just incredible. And we just really felt like we wanted to kind of pay homage really, mm-hmm. to these, in the beginning, bakers and then cooks who got this going and kept it going through two world wars and through many, all these generations. And also, not only to celebrate the past, but to keep things going for the mm-hmm. future so that this incredible mm-hmm. legacy will continue. 
Well, let's go way back in time because uh, these competitions have changed so dramatically over the years. First of all, the fact that that fair, you know, food contests were a part of the fair from the very start, way yes. back in the 1850s. But were there records kept of of what happened? How did you guys even find this information? Absolutely, that's that's a great question. So yes, um, through very very old newspaper clippings, believe it or not, we actually found the first three ladies who won their one dollar premiums. That's a cash prize given for the very first pound cakes and the very first preserves. And it's one thing it did for both of us was to really increase our respect and admiration for what had to be done. When I think about entering now in modern day, we've got our modern kitchens and air conditioning and cars that we drive mm-hmm. on roads mm-hmm. that are paved <laughs> to get it to the fair. But back, you know, back in the 1800s, you're talking about um, adding wood, you know, wood to your wood stove and moderating the temperature by opening and closing the oven. And and so it was quite a lot of research, but it was a lot of fun to look at these old recipes and to read them and see how they have changed so much. I mean, things like, uh, you know, bake in a slow oven until it's done kind of a kind of right or a, kind of a moderate oven because they were using wood fired ovens. Absolutely. Nobody had nobody had thermometers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Carol, I mean, looking back at this history, we were talking just a little bit about judging. That early judging was done by men. Right. Almost all the competitors were women. In fact, probably all the competitors were women. Mm -hmm. It was done by men, and they weren't tasting the food. (laughs) There were lots of different rules going on way back then. It's amazing that that they were able to award uh, the prizes that they did. But, uh, yeah, early on, some of the uh, superintendents were were men. They ran the show, and um, there were no men competitors. Um, uh, some tried, but <laughs> got kicked out. Um, whatever of the of the judging competition, so it was just a whole different ball game. And um, uh, going on to what uh, Kay was saying about uh, the wood fired stuff, um, you have to remember we can run to the grocery store and get more eggs or more butter or whatever we need to do our baking. Um, these people, you had to raise the chickens, you had to cl- collect the eggs every day, you had to you know make your own butter. Then you had to bake it, and, and then you had to get it to Des Moines on, with a horse and buggy or horse and wagon. There were very few cars uh, to get the, the people back to the fair. But everybody wanted to come to the fair. And um, so they, they got there, come hell or high water, and, uh, <laughs> and that's just how it all developed, you know, and it just kept processing and, and changing over time. Right, and, and back then the fair was moving from place to place. Right, right. And so it was kind of loosey-goosey as far as exactly. the competition. Competitions yeah, were exactly. going, weren't they? If people thought that the, st- the state fair was always in east part of Des Moines, uh, they were way wrong because um, it started in Fairfield, and the ag committees of those areas would, would take it on for a year or sometimes two years. But it moved all over the eastern part of the state, and uh, from Fairfield to Muscatine to Iowa City, Dubuque, Burlington, Clinton, Keokuk, Cedar Rapids. Uh, and then when the Iowa Capitol moved to Des Moines, then the fair ultimately followed. So that's how all that developed. So right. And it as it was um, moving around, every right. location put their own spin on Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Of right. course, people in different parts of the state could get there a little more easily. Absolutely. And so mm-hmm. we are going to have to take a short break. 
We will talk a lot more about how the culinary department at the Iowa State Fair developed over the years, how the State Fair food competitions have changed. We'll find out about some of the the people who have cooked their way to greatness at the competitions over the years. With me this hour, Kay Fenton-Smith and Carol McGarvey. They are co-authors of the book Baking Blue Ribbons, Stories and Recipes from the Iowa State Fair Food Competitions. And coming up in just about 20 minutes, we will say a fond farewell to IPR's Clay Masters, who has signed off of Morning Edition for the final time and is moving on to Minnesota Public Radio. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me this hour are Kay Fenton-Smith and Carol McGarvey. They both have long histories with the Iowa State Fair as competitors, as judges, as journalists covering the fair, as exhibitors, people putting on demonstrations, all kinds of experience. They have worked together to produce the first comprehensive history of Iowa State Fair food competitions. The book is called Baking Blue Ribbons, Stories and Recipes from the Iowa State Fair Food Competitions. And you can find the book in the State Fair store on the Iowa State Fair Blue Ribbon Foundation at bookstores. And, of course, you'll be able to buy it at the fair come August. And so before the break, we were kind of talking about the history, the early history of the fair, which women were baking bread or cakes and then taking a horse, horse-drawn horse buggy across the state to have <laughs> their loaf of bread looked at by a team of men who said, yes, that one looks like the best one at the <laughs> fair. So things got a lot more complicated and really developed over the years. Once the state fair moved to Des Moines and had its permanent fairgrounds, tell me a little bit about how the culinary department came together. Yes. Well, first of all, Charity, it was originally way back in the 1800s, it was called the Pantry Division. And then later it became the Pantry and Kitchen Division. And um, it really, you know, in the early days, when you, especially when you look at the early 1900s, there were, you know, there was, things were really getting better because more pan, different types of pans were available and more ingredients were available. But then you had World War One came along, and things were all rationed, and people did not have access to things like regular white wheat flour and things like that. So things really had to change. And, and to the credit of Iowa bakers then, which they were then women back then, they really stepped up and got creative. And that's when you started to see <clears throat> different types of categories were coming on. So things were really expanding. And uh, it later became... Um, in the 1930s, um, you, you had one of the things began at the Iowa State Fair, which still happens today, and that is getting back to the judging. It was no longer just those committees of men. You had 
you had women. You had your your first culinary superintendent, uh, who was a woman who was in charge of what the what she then named the culinary department, and it was a dedicated culinary department. And she was the one who started really food education, where a judge was nominated. And believe it or not, back then one judge who was a woman, would do the entire fair. Now, granted, it was I a lot, lot smaller back then. That. It, even if it was smaller, that is extraordinary. <laughs> and to do it day after day after day. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. And uh, we have a, a great section on that uh, about these women. And they wore their white their white dresses, and they were very professional. They had food education, what, what would then have been called home economics backgrounds. And they really brought more of you know, like I said, education and science to it. I mean, they they also started something back then um, where you didn't just have the judge, but the judge would write comments. So imagine doing all this at the same time. Now, today, if Carol and I are judging, we have a writer sitting next to us, and that writer will write our comments, will write our advice on how to make a recipe better. But back then, that judge, she had to taste everything she had to write comments and speak to the audience and let the audience know what was going on and what was winning or, or what needed improvement and things. So it's really an incredible thing. And Iowa, as far as we know, is the only state fair food department where that happens. When you go today at the end of the fair and you pick up your recipe cards and if you have ribbons or what you ha- whatever you have in your envelope – Inside that envelope, even if you didn't win a ribbon, on the back of that recipe card, you are going to find comments, ha- helpful comments to, um, we hope, help you improve your recipe and bring it back next year. And so that's how culinary education really got launched. And that is a big part of the Iowa State Fair Food Department even today. Well, and, and so it's not just food. It's about community. It's about learning. It's about bringing people together. And in the 30s, there were a lot of different things going on in our culture. One of them, of course, was the the growth of radio. And I mentioned earlier the Kitchen Clatter program on KMA Radio, where there were housekeepers <coughs> on the air sharing their cooking advice with women all over the state. And so that, that really changed the culture, didn't it, Carol? Absolutely. I remember my mom listening to... Uh, kitchen clatter every single day on the radio. I swear we knew more about the Driftmeyer family than than they knew about anybody else. But <laughs> it was uh, it was it was pretty fun. And they put out a magazine with recipes and things in it. They sold products like uh, bottles of vanilla and things like that. They really and at the same time in Des Moines, uh, Better Homes and Gardens was developing and. There was this whole food culture that was taking place in Iowa that probably went under the radar for many people, but it was very real. And um, I think that um, we were ahead of our time, you know, to do all that. Now, and, uh, there, there were prizes for winning contests at the fair. And, and there, of course, the, the blue ribbons, the red ribbons, the white ribbons, <laughs> the ribbons have been a very important part of this. And still, there's so much pride in winning mm-hmm. one of those ribbons. But prize money grew over the years. And then also, um, businesses got involved because they realized, right. oh, this is a great way to get the right. word out about our products, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and even today, um, Hy-Vee or Better Homes or 
or Midwest Living Magazine and its huge cookie contest or mm-hmm. uh, any, any number of um, businesses around the state have, have gotten involved. And um, they, there was a classic one when uh, Tones Spices was owned by local people. They did the $3,000 um, cinnamon roll contest, which was huge. And they don't do it anymore because Tones has been sold to an out-of-state company, out-of-country company, I believe. And um, but it was um, it was just magnificent. Um, if I could do a quick um, rundown of the lines of people who brought their white paper plate with four cinnamon rolls on it, they stood in line to register their their wow. goods, and it was uh, just amazing. One time when I was done my judging, I was leaving to go to the uh, North parking lot to get my car. And I was halted in my walk because I saw a scene that made me sort of sort of ill. There were three women standing there holding their white paper plates with their four rolls on them. And I wish they had brought a little plastic white knife to do what they were doing. They were wanting their frosting to look perfect. <laughs> and so they put their finger in their mouth to moisten it with saliva and then smushed their frosting (laughs) with their finger and to make it perfect. And I I paused because I wondered, should I go in and tattle on them? But uh, I thought through through that it was uh, better that I didn't. Um, (laughs) There was was no way, though, that I would know which, there were so many white paper plates and there (laughs) were, and you don't know the names of the people and you, no one ever knows their names unless they win, um, you know, when they open the card. But um, I decided, would I want to know as a judge if this (laughs) had gone on out in the parking lot? And so... Ultimately, I walked on. <laughs> oh, goodness. So as a judge, you do have to be trusting. You do. You, you have to decide, did this um, pie, cake, baked good, whatever, did it come from Indianola 20 minutes away in an air-conditioned car? Or did it come from Burlington, Iowa in a hot trunk? You know, um, And will I be okay if I try all this? I don't know of anybody who's ever gotten sick, so I know that good That's care is taken. pretty impressive, actually, <laughs> yes. considering that these are home kitchens all exactly. over the state, exactly. all kinds of different conditions. That That's really yeah. incredible. Um, I, With those companies getting involved, there have been moments where a recipe has gotten selected and then commercialized and sold. Mm -hmm. For example, um, the Gedney Pickle Company. Right. Mm -hmm. There were Narita sold of Bettendorf and Robin Tarbell Thomas of Centerville in 1999. Both had their recipes selected. Absolutely. And then they were sold. And the thing about that story, I mean, I think that's very cool. But the thing about that story that really struck me is that Narita waived her royalties from the pickles because that would have turned her into a professional, professional. and she would not have been able to compete right. in the amateur right. food contests anymore. I mean, that's that's an incredible story. Absolutely, it, it is. It, it is. That is. And it really underscores the level of pride that... All everyone who enters and everyone who's involved in any way with the food department takes and, and how that has been true since day one. And it is still true today. Mm-hmm. And that 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 is a great story. But you're right, Charity, the the companies going way, way mm-hmm. back, um, even way back in the 20s, 30s and 40s, you had smaller companies like Omar Wonderflower and we dubbed them the Wonder Bakers. And these 
these little tiny newspapers mm-hmm. who unfor- unfortunately are most of them no longer mm-hmm. in print, but these local town newspapers would feature the photos and sometimes the recipes of women who used Wonder Flower in their blue ribbon recipes, and they would tally up how many blue ribbons they won. And I mean, in a way, they turned these incredibly creative, wonderful bakers into, you know, small town culinary celebrities. And and here, you know, Belly Mosier and others, um, they they had their pictures in the paper, and it was a really big deal. And uh, it was it was just it was just another marker of like we were saying, just that that pride and that mm-hmm. commitment, and that it really means something to enter the Iowa State Fair mm-hmm. culinary competitions. I'm talking with Kay Fenton Smith and Carol McGarvey. They are authors of Baking Blue Ribbons: Stories and Recipes from the Iowa State Fair Food Competitions, and. There are people that you designate as super exhibitors. So tell me what that means. Yes, these are, and again, this started way back when, these are exhibitors who are entering 50-plus exhibits in a single fair. And uh, there's a great story in there actually about our current food superintendent, Pat Berry, who one year, it's hard to believe this, entered 384. Now, many of those were jams and jellies and preserves. And those things, of course, can be done you know, well in advance, like six months in advance. Um, but even so, you're talking about a lot of cakes and cookies and breads. And I, myself, I, I have all I can do just to get 10 things down to the fair. But uh, 384, that's, that's a lot. And these are super exhibitors who are they're competing across many categories and um, many divisions, and it's just impressive. And you mentioned the Tarbell Thomas family. That's a that is a great example of five generations of cooks and mostly bakers who have won just in, literally thousands of ribbons over their generations. And Robin Tarbell Thomas herself, who's believed to have won the most blue ribbons um, at the fair and we don't really know, but perhaps any fair. It's just the literally over 3,000 ribbons. It's That's incredible. It's yeah. quite something. Mm-hmm. Now, not that long ago, the Elwell Family Food Center really revolutionized the food competitions at the fair. It has air conditioning. It's a very comfortable, modern mm-hmm. building where a lot of people love to escape the heat of the fair, but also it's just made those exhibitions, those demonstrations, so much better. The lighted cases give everybody the chance to look at the amazing cakes and things like that. Carol, you judged well before the Elwell Family Food Center (laughs) came about. Tell me a little bit about some of the conditions you judged in over the years. Mm -hmm. When I first started, um, I was in the Maytag building, but it had just, right the year before or so, closed uh, before that, it was in non-air-conditioned areas um, uh, on the street side, shall we say, of the grandstand. And this is a funny story. We, <laughs> it was in print, so I, I'll tr- say it was true. Um, they would put the, um, the judged things, the winning things, on display on the stair steps in the building that uh, went from floor to ceiling. Now... The East Side Raccoons had their Thanksgiving dinner every single night of the week. Oh, my goodness. They would find a hole in the stairway on the other side and come in. You can imagine the unadulterated mess that was available the next morning. Um, So (laughs) it was high time that the judging moved out of that area. So they moved to the Maytag Center, then later moved to the Elwell Center. And um, it was... um, 
it was just an amazing, um, <laughs> fortuitous thing how having air conditioning helped so much to preserve some of the, the foods that had been judged. Absolutely. They, no they, raccoons in <laughs> no the LOL Center the building at right, all. Right. We right. only have a few minutes left. And I, looking through these recipes is so much fun. I definitely marked recipes that I want to make. There are some recipes that I would never, ever, right. ever make. There's the, <laughs> the Watergate cake with not one, not two, but three packages of pistachio right, instant pudding right. in it. There's the Bill Clinton cheesecake, which contains Diet Mountain Dew. <laughs> so how did you decide what recipes you wanted to include? That's a great story. And, and one of the things, Charity, as you look at the book and you look at each chapter, the, the book, of course, is divided by era. In the beginning of each era, you see a complete list of all the different types of recipes. And just looking at that alone tells a story of that culinary expansion and the culinary trends. And it is funny when you look at some of the, you know, th- that, uh, by the way, that's pistachio cake, by the way, is is fantastic. Yeah, it is. Uh, but uh, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> but on January 2nd, not many people are going to be making that since, no. since we're, you know. But, um, but it is, it, it's wonderful to see those culinary trends. And on the flip side of that, when you got into the, especially the 70s and especially in the 80s, there was a big health food trend. And we even found things like tofu competitions and other things that I probably might not enter just because they were ultra, ultra healthy. So, you know, you kind of see all ends of that spectrum. Um, but for us, it was a matter of really trying to show those culinary trends and to really see, to look at, Carol and I would look at the um, the list of competitions in each year and we could see what we needed to pull out as far as how, how do we show those trends and also what was available in terms of speaking to the cooks and the bakers. Um, could we get a hold of them or could we, in some cases, we would find them via those little newspapers. And boy, there's a whole history in those newspapers. And Carol and I, we really just feel honored that we were able to go back and celebrate these cooks and bakers throughout these generations and bring out those recipes that might have been lost and to really, um, like I keep saying, honor these these bakers, but to share these stories that had that many, most of which had never been told before and photos that had never been printed in a book form like this before. Yeah. You know, and, and so that it was just a lot of fun. And, and even while I got to test a lot of recipes, I felt like I was almost channeling these eras and these and these bakers um, by actually following their recipes and seeing how, how they did it and just how amazing that was and how some recipes really remained the same, but how other things, as you see in the book, change so much. And one of the things you'll see in the book is that we take, for example, even going way back to a beautiful um, a whole, almost a whole year's worth of recipes that, that the Des Moines Register published way back in the 1900s. We will put some of those old, old recipes you'll see next to modern-day champion recipes. And it's really neat to see that juxtaposition of the old recipes, but the new generation coming on strong. And we hope that continues well into the future. It is a, a treasure trove of recipes and stories. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for Thank having Thank you, us. Charity. Kay Fenton-Smith and Carol McGarvey. They are the co-authors of Baking Blue Ribbons, Stories and Recipes from the Iowa State Fair Food Competitions. You can find the book in the State Fair store on the Iowa State Fair Blue Ribbon Foundation website or at local booksellers. And of course, it will be on sale at the fair in August. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, 
and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Twelve years ago, a fresh-faced young journalist from Nebraska came to work for Iowa Public Radio. He started out as our statehouse reporter and very quickly became an indispensable member of the news team. He's covered state politics and national politics. He endured three caucus cycles, created the podcast Caucus Land, led in-depth coverage of water quality and other environmental issues in the state, moonlighted on the music scene, and more. In addition to all of that, for the last 10 years, you've been waking up to his voice on Morning Edition. Today is Clay Masters' last day with Iowa Public Radio. He's moving north to become Minnesota Public Radio's senior political reporter, and he is here now for one last conversation on Talk of Iowa. Hello, Clay. Good morning. It is wonderful to have you here. And I don't know if I've ever told you this, Clay, but even before you were hired at IPR, our former news director played a tape of you for me, and I said to him, wow, that guy has a lot of potential. And that <laughs> turned out to be an incredible understatement. I'm just so glad that you came to IPR. Uh, when you came, you came to be statehouse reporter. What were things like when you started out? Well, when I came to Iowa, well, first off, I was in Nebraska and I did cover some of the legislature there. So the joke was like, uh, Nebraska is the only place that has a unicameral. So wait, it was like, wait a minute, there are two chambers of government here in the, in the legislature? <laughs> Um, when, when I first Steep got here, learning curve. <laughs> that's right. Yes, Clay. And the rest of the country. When I first got here, uh, there was split control in the Iowa legislature. The Democrats controlled the Senate. The house was controlled by Republicans and, uh, former governor Terry Branstad had only been a couple years into his second time in the, in the governor's seat. And, you know, I think I was naive when I came here and was watching how things would play out in the legislature. There was kind of this comment that would get thrown around that Des Moines is not D.C., that would get things done. Uh, you, you saw deals that were being made, uh, especially in the 2013 uh, Iowa legislative session where there was a Medicaid expansion and some various other uh, issues that were gathering bipartisan support. And so it's it's been interesting to watch. Just I have spent less time at the state house, obviously, uh, as I moved on to doing mornings. But it's been interesting just to see how much the state uh, legislature has changed in Iowa. Almost immediately when you got here, though, even though you were the state house reporter, you were also covering national politics at the same time, right? That's right. And it was 2012 when I got here. And my first week on the job, I think it was, or at least maybe the second week on the job, I was uh, sent over to cover Mitt Romney, who was uh, running for president. He was the nominee now. I I'd missed the 2012 Iowa caucuses by a few months, but Romney was the nominee. Uh, and I was covering his event because, remember, the the six electoral votes for Iowa were very well fought over back then in 2012 between Romney and Barack Obama. And um, now just a couple of weeks ago, when I worked my last week on the job, I was covering uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and interviewing them. So I've been covering presidential politics here in the state for almost the entire 12 years I've been here. You came 12 years ago, but you've been hosting Morning Edition for 10 years, which is hard to wrap my mind around because it feels like it was like a minute ago and a lifetime ago at the same time. Yeah. But uh, gosh, 10 years on Morning Edition. How do you think about that? I, I don't know. How does anybody think about a 10-year span of waking up at four in the morning? 
it, it's been a challenge, really. I mean, I am. Uh, my spouse told me the other day, you know, you never were a morning person, um, but it, it came at a time in this organization where uh, my predecessor Sarah McCammon, who is now a, a very uh, a very familiar voice on on NPR, a great correspondent, she was doing both morning edition and political reporting, and uh, I, I took over for for her when she left. And the last ten years, it, it's been a challenge to come in every morning. Uh, if all I was thinking about was, oh, I've got to get up, I've got to, you know, get on the radio. But the thing that it, that has helped propel me forward through these 10 years is knowing that that people are dependent on public radio to bring them a window into the world and, and facts about what's happening. I've tried to approach Morning Edition and hosting in the morning in, in a very conversational way, the best that I can um, at, at times, you know, smiling through the morning, trying to tell everybody without saying it, that, you know, we're just trying to get through the morning. <laughs> we're just trying to get through the day. And knowing that a freedom of the press is a pillar of American democracy, and it's something that we all need to figure out what's going on in the country and in the world and in the state that we live in. And we're busy. We've got a lot going on. And listeners need a friendly voice to just tell them what's happening uh, as they're trying to shoehorn uh, the day's news into their, you know, busy mornings. And so that's really what's uh, gone forward. You know, during pledge drives, we talk a lot about hearing from people all over the state. And I, I would say it on every pledge drive. Like, it's so fun to hear all these people that are actually listening because I'm, I, you know, I'm not talking to myself. And so the thing that's helped me, your original question was about, you know, just how do I think about 10 years of hosting uh, every morning during the week? What got me up every morning, it sounds, I, I don't know, almost like I'm making it up, but it, it's sincere, was just that there were a lot of people who were depending on the news being delivered to them with a local component. And, th and that's what public radio is all about. And Clay, I'm I'm not just your coworker. I am also a listener and a big fan. And I have to say that you have done that so well for 10 years with so much warmth and sincerity. And during the pandemic, during especially those dark, dark days of the pandemic, I know that you were going through a lot. We were all going through a lot. But to hear your voice every morning with that warmth, talking me through the daily forecast and all of the horrible things that <laughs> yeah. were going on in the world. I mean, that that meant so much to me personally, and I am sure that I am not alone. And I'm also sure that I know we talked about it. That was a really hard time for you. You were working really in isolation. Yeah, I'll never forget the first, it was like months of doing that. And then our finance director was in one day and it was almost like when you're on a hike and you see a deer and you just stop. <laughs> and you're like, Another person is in my vicinity. It was just a, a wild time. And, and, you know, yeah, it was something that we were going through together as a community, right? Early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of we're going to get through this together kind of mentality. And that kind of changed as the pandemic wore on and got into 2021. But I mean, it was really strange. I, I still remember the last uh, news meeting that we had, the morning news meeting where we were all gathered together. And, you know, it was kind of this like, well, we'll see you when we see you. It, you know, there's just, just so many unknowns out there. And what was so incredible was just the amount of work that went into uh, making sure that people could safely do their jobs, you know, service the towers, uh, the, the broadcast operations and engineering departments to be able to do their job, uh, reporters 
finding their quietest part of their uh, closets or basements to record the stories that make it onto the air. And it really felt like we were, you know, at the core of what public broadcasting is, is we were a public service. I mean, I remember uh, getting all those emails, um, and certainly it was really good that we'd hired Natalie Krebs, a health reporter, to be here during that time period uh, to gather all the information. And, you know, it was kind of the first line of defense when it came to information gathering for people. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a lifeline uh, for me, too, because it was just my job to get, get the information out there. When you talk about what you've done at Iowa Public Radio to other people who work in public radio, I, I'm sure that people are like, wait, isn't that two full-time jobs that you have, Clay? <laughs> and I mean, in so many ways, it has been. So through all of this time that you've been hosting Morning Edition, you've also really been our senior political reporter at the same time. Yeah, uh, don't suggest doing that. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> it, it's been it's been a constant dance, um, which it's been weird for my schedule where I'm working weekends um, and evenings, trying to balance, um, you know, what happens in the middle of the day. In a way, it's helped me interview people in the field, too, right? Like people that would listen to public radio know who I am. It's helped me build sources. It's helped me uh, just do my job. And and the two work really well together to be able to, you know, communicate effectively on the radio and then to do interviews in, in the field. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to sleeping in, in the morning and focusing on one of the jobs. <laughs> well, well-deserved, way past <laughs> well-deserved. Um, let's talk about some of your most memorable moments as a reporter at IPR. I mean, again, I mentioned the caucuses. You have been through now Almost three full caucus cycles. We're, right. we're on the cusp of the third one. What are some of the moments that stand out to you? I think the moment that stands out the most to me was in 2015, the summer of 2015, uh, the Iowa Democratic Party's wing ding that they hold in Clear Lake at the Surf Ballroom. It was one of these multi-candidate events and Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and I think like Lincoln Chafee was still running at that time. Uh, we're, we're giving speeches, and I interviewed uh, Hillary Clinton backstage at the Surf Ballroom. And this was the summer of 2015. This uh, guy from a TV show called The Apprentice was running for president and was starting to really kind of measure in the polls. And I was sitting in the backstage of the Surf Ballroom Ill- interviewing Hillary Clinton. And as the, the interview was winding down, on the TV screen behind us, there was Donald Trump speaking. And Hillary Clinton was, turned around and looked at the screen and she said, oh, there he is. There's my friend, Donald. And it was, it was just this moment that I think about regularly because at that time, it, it seemed, I don't know, it didn't seem like that was going to be the dynamic that we would see in the general election. And it was just this moment to just be a reporter in the room interviewing the the former first lady and secretary of state. And this reality TV star was on the TV behind her. It was just one of those surreal moments that that I will always remember going forward. 
you've interviewed a lot of other candidates. I mean, that's an understatement, too. A lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot of other candidates over the years. But something else that I, I know that has been really important to you while we weren't in the midst of caucus cycles is environmental reporting in Iowa. And you really led an in-depth effort to report on water quality issues in the state, kicking that off and then following up on it throughout the years. Tell me a little bit about that work. Well, that all started when it was 10 years ago when the, and we won't get into the depths of it, but the nutrient reduction strategy came forward, which is this list of voluntary things that um, farmers can do to help, you know, with non-point pollutants. Uh, and, you know, I'd known about the dead zone for a long time, and I, I went and interviewed the late Bill Stowe, who was the uh, Des Moines Waterworks president uh, who uh, passed away a couple of years ago. And I interviewed him about it because I wanted to get the perspective of somebody from a utility. And I was amazed by the responses that I was getting from him about how he didn't see this as being effective at all. And then you'll remember there was a lawsuit that the waterworks brought forward suing upstream drainage districts in three counties that kind of just set off this uh, firestorm of anger between uh, the rural communities and um, definitely directed towards Des Moines. But it was a way to start having this conversation about water quality in the state. It was a very like, you know, people could understand it. It, it brought the issue to the forefront. And it continues to be something that has helped, you know, move the conversation forward. Uh, it hasn't, there hasn't been a lot of change in Iowa's water quality since that came out 10 years ago. But it, it, it has led itself to helping me find other stories to do, like in northeast Iowa. I've, I've gone to the Driftless region several times to report on some of the livestock feeding operations that are expanding in the karst topography there. Uh, it's just something that, you know, water is something I think a lot of us take for granted, and it can be forgotten about. And finding ways to tell stories about the natural resources in this state has been something that... I have tried to focus on and, and put at the forefront of our listeners' minds. Bloody Run Creek is among 34 waterways designated as outstanding Iowa waters by the DNR. If we can't protect one of our outstanding Iowa waters, the very best that we have, then we all have to take a step back and say, we really can't protect anything in Iowa if we can't protect Bloody Run Creek. Over the years that you've been at IPR, uh, we've brought in a lot of new reporters, and we have expanded our coverage substantially to parts of the state that we weren't covering well at the very beginning of your tenure. Um, we have our, our Western Iowa position now and our Eastern Iowa position. And, you know, we, we've been working really hard to build a yeah. strong news team. And you've been such an important part of that as well. And I know that you are heading to another organization. But tell me how you think about IPR in this moment. When I got to Iowa Public Radio, I had a lot of growth that I still needed. You said that the former news director had shown you something and you saw a lot of potential in me. Um, when I got here, I remember one of the first times that same news director uh, put me on the air during River to River. I had never gone on a live talk show before. And I was so nervous and I had like written everything up, uh, scripted everything. And it's probably, God bless Ben, I'm sure it sounded like I was just quickly reading from a script. But when I think about where I was at that point and where I am today, 
Iowa Public Radio has been a place where I could grow as a journalist uh, that respected my talents, that wanted the best out of the newsroom staff. I've always felt really good about the mission of Iowa Public Radio and the people that work in this organization. Everybody's working towards the same mission. And so this has been a great place to be. This has been a great place to grow as a journalist. And uh, uh, Iowa will always be a, a, a second home to me or a third home or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, a, it's a great organization to have worked for. Clay, I'm, I'm so sad to lose you as a colleague. I'm so sad to lose you as a listener. But I'm just so incredibly grateful for the 12 years that you've spent here. And I'm so happy for you moving into the future. Thank you so much for everything. And I just wish you and your family all the best. Oh, thank you, Charity. It's, it's been a pleasure to work with you as well. Clay Masters, IPR's Morning Edition host and lead political reporter. He has been a valued and beloved member of IPR's newsroom for the last 12 years. Next up, he will be senior political reporter at Minnesota Public Radio. Here's how he signed off on his last day of hosting Morning Edition. Well, folks, this is my last time coming to you as your morning host at Iowa Public Radio. I've accepted a new job, a new opportunity, and I just want to say thanks for your time, your trust, and let's be honest, some mornings, your patience. It's been an honor to start weekday mornings with you these last 10 years. Most of all, thank you for your support of this public radio network in Iowa. A free press is a pillar of democracy, and IPR could not be here without its members. Please keep it up. I'll talk to you later, and one last time, this is Morning Edition on Iowa Public Radio. I'm Clay Masters. It's 8.50. Have a good one. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Neppy. When everything I'm a saying, you can see it just as good. <laughs>